0: To get us started today, I would like to share a few lines from a 2019 Literary Hub article written by Rachel Richardson and entitled, How Ramona Quimby Helps Kids Make Sense of This Unstable World. Richardson writes, More than anything, Ramona stands for empathy in the face of misunderstanding. She reminds us how it was to be a child in a big world, needing to be seen, cared for, and reminded that we belong, and she loves fiercely. Of Ramona's larger world, Richardson adds later in the same piece, that scrappy troupe of resourceful, ordinary kids changed me. And the little one, Ramona, shines the biggest light. She's irrepressible, zooming her lopsided, two-wheeled trike in circles around the driveway. She's going to make it, and she knows it. I'm grateful for her reminder that earnest effort, in childhood and always, is what makes a heroine. It makes a great story, too. I could not have said it better myself, but my guests and I fangirl about these and other elements of Ramona Quimby's character on episode 253. More than five years into the podcast, we finally have the opportunity to discuss Ramona the Pest by the great Beverly Cleary. The book was published in 1968 and gives readers a front row seat to the thoughts and feelings of kindergartner Ramona, who is an incredibly real and relatable child. Ramona the Pest is a beloved title and has been requested by so many of you since the podcast began. It also inspires conversations about so many things. Sibling relationships, the way we talk about each other's bodies, kids' feelings about how adults talk to them, non-consensual touching, gender norms, main character energy, and the importance of portraying average, everyday kids. My guest and I also share our favorite Ramona-isms, and admire our main characters, independent thinking, self-awareness, and agency. In a twist I bet you didn't see coming, my guest even brings in her personal experience with the Real Housewives franchise to draw parallels to Ramona's life. Ramona Quimby really is a girl for all times. We have a very fun, very interesting guest on the show for you today. After graduating from Canada's McGill University, Kara Alloway was hired by Condé Nast's Allure magazine in Los Angeles. She quickly became known for her writing contributions, sharing her perspective on the world of fashion and beauty with a journalist's approach. Kara was recruited back to Canada and became editor-in-chief of Ingenue magazine, which, under her direction, had the fastest growth in circulation among Canadian publication history for the teen demographic. In addition, she hosted a daily fashion and beauty radio show, interviewing icons like Stella McCartney, Laura Mercier, Zach Posen, Oscar de la Renta, and more. In 2017, Cara appeared on The Real Housewives of Toronto, which you will hear quite a bit about on this episode. Her new novel, Most Hated, is an insider's look at the glamorous, precarious, and ruthless world of reality TV that also examines internalized misogyny. Learn more about Cara and her work at her website, www.caraalloway.com, or by following her on Instagram and Twitter, at Cara Instagram is my home base for lots of fun behind the scenes and podcast news. So if you like what you hear today, be sure you're following me there. Instagram is a fantastic place to spread the word as well. If you feel so inspired, please take a screenshot of this episode now and post it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me so I can see it and share. You can also find SSR on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Did you know that SSR is an independent podcast? This means that I operate as a one-woman show, managing everything from scheduling guest interviews and researching for recordings to editing episodes and handling all things marketing. If this sounds like a lot of work, it's because it is, and I do it without the financial support of a larger organization. SSR's Patreon supporters have played a huge role in making all of this possible, but I am always seeking more podcast fans who want to join that community and help me keep the show going strong. For less than the cost of a nice cup of coffee, you can show your support for the podcast and get lots of fun rewards in return, including newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. Learn more and jump into our community and maybe even our exclusive book club at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I have shouted out my love for Inkwell Threads on the podcast before, and I am about to do it again. My friends at Inkwell recently released a new summer line, and I pretty much want to buy every item. Everything I've purchased from Inkwell in the past has been high quality and has quickly become one of my most worn pieces of clothing. Plus, you can get 20% off all Inkwell Threads purchases when you use code SSRPOD at checkout. Shop the whole collection at www.inkwellthreads.com slash ssrpod, and be sure to use code ssrpod to get 20% off. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Hi Kara, welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to have you today for many reasons, but I have to tell you, it feels like such a gift that I get to experience Ramona Quimby with you for the very first time.
1: Okay, I feel like it's such a gift because I had forgotten about this book and when I was reading it, so much resonated with me as an adult, as a mom, and especially as a second-generation feminist, but
0: we'll get into that in a bit. Oh yeah, I can't wait to hear about all of those details. So if I'm not mistaken, when you chose this book, you mentioned to me that it wasn't one that you'd read when you were a kid. Were you familiar with Beverly Cleary's other books? I was, it was one of the situations I never, I don't know why I never picked
1: them up in the classroom. I just, they never, Maybe the you know, I have to say I was very superficial. Maybe the the art on the cover didn't resonate with me. Maybe I didn't like the look of Ramona's haircut or something. It's actually very similar to the haircut I had. So maybe I didn't like that. But no, I had never read her books.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I am thrilled that we're talking about this book. I can't believe it's taken us two hundred and fifty plus episodes to get here because People have been clamoring for more Ramona since like the earliest days of SSR. At the very beginning, we did an episode about Ramona and Beezus, which was the first book in this Ramona Quimby series. Right. And Ramona the Pest is the second book. And of course, it's the book that centers Ramona herself. So I think most people think of it as like the most important one, because as much as we love Beezus... Ramona is the star. So again, this book came out in 1968, written by Beverly Cleary, who very sadly passed away a few years ago at the age of 104, which is just like wild to me. Wow. So there was so much out in the pop culture sphere at that time, reflecting on Beverly Cleary's work and her incredible contributions to children's literature. And so I think I will probably have a chance to pull in some of those reflections over the course of our conversation. But yes, Ramona uh, is close to the hearts of many of us. And uh, I'm excited that we get to talk about her today. So let's jump right in, Kara. Tell me what your first impressions were of Ramona as we got into her story. Okay, so it's really
1: interesting because after I finished filming The Real Housewives of Toronto. I was a participant on The Real Housewives of Toronto. Somebody handed me a book by Dr. Phyllis Chesler, who is an 80-year-old psychologist that lives in Manhattan. And it's called Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. Now, bear with me here. Okay. Because Dr. Chesler talks about how women interact with women. And she says, this is why this book blew my mind, because you had no way of knowing this before we picked this book. Dr. Chesler says it starts at eight years old in the playground. Oh my gosh. So I was reading this book. I got chills. I seriously started reading it when I saw that she was going to kindergarten. And and I think she's a little younger than that. However, so much of what I had read from Dr. Chesler and how she talks about the tribal nature of women and what happens in the playground, was resonating from what Beverly Cleary had written. And I had one of those out of my head moments. I mean, my kids were like, what is wrong with you? You're reading Ramona. Why are you (laughs) going? Because I kept closing the book saying, I can't believe this. I really can't believe this. And then opening it again.
0: (laughs) So that really struck me. Well, the playground politics of this book are pretty intense. And it's not only playground politics, but we have politics at home with her parents and her sister. We have the politics of the neighborhood because Ramona lives in this really like cozy seeming subdivision that is walkable to her elementary school like it's all very idyllic in many ways and there's a lot out there about how you know these books are this lovely return to nostalgia in some ways and then of course they're this very whitewashed environment there's not a person in this book who's not white and there is this underlying sense of like patriarchy and sexism so those things are not a great return to nostalgia oh very much so no no i very
1: much got that from her mom yeah that was very interesting that really resonated with me from her mom for
0: sure but there is this sense of simplicity that I do think some columnists and bloggers have reflected on as being like really comforting especially over the last couple of years but I do think like the politics of Ramona's life as you've mentioned and described on the playground specifically are really interesting and relevant to all of us and I'd love to start there too like Ramona is, she constantly refers to herself as like, I'm the youngest in my family. I'm the youngest in the neighborhood. And that's really part of her identity. And I was curious if you have any thoughts on this. Like, I don't know where you fall in the, in the birth order of your family. If you have siblings or your own children, like, I think that Ramona's role as like the little sister and the little friend who's always tagging along really informs who she is in this book.
1: 100% I agree with that. And I am the youngest in my family in the birth order. And I was also a very small child on top of that. So being the youngest as well as being tiny, I mean, whenever we played house, there was never any question. I was never going to be the mom. I was always the baby. Mm. And I hated that. I remember in the fort, I hated that my girlfriend was always the mom because she was the tallest. So the tallest got to be the mom or the dad. I went to an all-girl school. The tallest was the mom or the dad, and I was always the baby. And also as the youngest, Ramona mentions this, like the idea of growing up, it just seemed endless and forever. And there, the age gap between myself and my older sister was five years, which is really significant. I mean, she was doing things on a five-year lead time, even things like going to school and whatnot, that just, I couldn't wait to rush and hurry up. And, and I'm sure because of that, you know, I was so excited to get my ears pierced. I was so excited to start wearing makeup. There was a lot of, that. I can remember, I was so excited. I did not need a bra and I forced my mom to buy me a bra. it's like, <laughs> I am getting A bra. (laughs) I don't care. My mom was like, maybe an undershirt. No, I need a bra. And I think the store was called La Vie en Rose, and I made her, and even the lady was like, for what? (laughs) She's like oh aren't you sweet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was hideous. I was yeah. So I I could really relate to her frustration at being little and her frustration when the adults would say oh aren't you sweet? You're so little. You're so cute. You're so that was just and and I didn't just get that from adults. I got that from classmates too, which is really interesting because again I I hope you don't mind if I if I go back to some of my time on the show. Oh please. Some of the time on on housewives it's so funny because there wasn't edit where I was accused of not encouraging body positivity because there was a plus size girl and I was so outraged by that because I said if anybody understands that believe it or not it's me having always been and people don't really get this and they say oh it's not the same at all but it is when you're too skinny and you have to have a uniform specially made for you when you're too tiny when you're too it's not cute it's not charming it's not it's meta frustrating. So if anything, I was so outraged when the edit came out and made it look as if I had been unkind to the plus size individual on the show because I just I just said, oh, if anyone would understand, it would be me. And of course, when I would write that on social media, people would say, no, that's not the same at all. But it is. Anytime a woman doesn't measure up to what we think the standard is there is room for hurt, there is room for insecurity, there is room for all of those nasty feelings to come in and take place.
0: Yeah, I think generally like commentary about size and bodies, no matter the context or direction is really dangerous. And it starts when we're young and Ramona is a great example of that I think because Mm -hmm. anytime somebody comments on your body, I mean, we were not born like knowing or assuming what the world thinks of our bodies, those things develop in us based on the way other people regard us. Excellent point. And so a girl like Ramona is learning to see herself as small. And because people make fun of her and call her a pest because she's small, and as they say, annoying and irritating, and just like perpetually around, she will likely like take some of those insecurities on into other parts of her life. So I do think it's important to have the conversation about like, commentary on bodies in general is just not productive. And it's unfortunate that for so long, those insults have been weighted in the direction of people in bigger bodies. But it is important to just, I think, like set the standard that like, let's just like not talk about bodies. And here in 1968, when this book was written, a huge part of Ramona's identity is her size and not just her stature, but the fact that like she's younger and annoying.
1: Very much so.
0: Yeah, so I was at the opposite end of the spectrum and I guess still am. I'm the oldest in my family. So I was the Beezis. Oh. Um okay. but my siblings are much younger than I am. So I feel like I never had that relationship where I was annoyed by them because I sort of wasn't allowed to be. Like I was so much older than they were that like I understand that. There was this weird tension of like I'm just gonna sort of babysit them a lot of the time more than I'm going to relate to them as a sibling. So I just sort of, a lot of times when we read books for the podcast that talk about birth order or like shine a spotlight on those dynamics, I am just more interested in it sociologically. And I do feel like Ramona is such a prime example of like the youngest child who's always trying to tag along with what everybody else is doing. She is the youngest child smack in the middle of this neighborhood of all these other families who are older than she is. Like I just, I felt for her. She just wants to be accepted. She wants to be respected. And I think it's something that Beverly Cleary does so well. And there are so many think pieces out there about this. And I found some great ones that I'll link in the show notes. Beverly Cleary is so amazing at, showing readers what the world looks like from a kid's perspective. And so much of that is like the way that adults talk about you. And you kind of referred to this earlier, Kara, the sense that like, yes, adults are always making comments about how like, oh, you know, you're growing up so fast. or like, oh, you're just tired. Just kind of like explaining to you how you feel and how you are. And as a 30 something person, it's been a long time since I transported myself back to feeling that way. And reading this book, it it made me feel like I was right back there again. And I think that just speaks to the power of Beverly Cleary's writing. She did a phenomenal job of that.
1: Absolutely. There was nothing worse when I was little. Then my mom's saying, you're tired, you need a nap. Mm. It just took all the control, like what you said. And Beverly Cleary does a great job because again, I mean, can I tell you, I was teary eyed when I was <laughs> reading this book for a bevy of reasons. But you know, when I, she does such a great job of capturing that and of someone else almost the, the idea now that we hear a lot about invalidating the feelings. And it starts with Ramona when she's just this age and entering kindergarten. And I felt her frustration and I remembered that frustration. And she did such a great job of capturing it. And then I have three boys and it's so fascinating to me when I have girlfriends who have the eldest is a girl and then the youngest is a boy. And they say, oh, it's just a boy thing. And it makes me pull my hair out. And I say, no, it's not. Birth order is so much more a factor than gender. It's all about the birth order. I'm curious to know the age difference between yourself and your siblings. Uh,
0: yeah, so my next youngest sibling is six years younger than I am.
1: Okay. Yeah, so. Yep, so I get that babysitting. Yes, my sister and I are five and we were we were pretty much on the verge of that. And, and there would be things like, I'd be playing in the sandbox. I mean, mom, I love my mom so much. She's still alive. She's 92, bless her. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I would be playing in the sandbox and my mom would be wanting to take my sister and her girlfriend shopping so my aunt would be in the house and they would you know have code words and sneak off and i was always like so nervous about what they were saying and looking around because they wanted to sneak off and not bring the little pest with them like i was the pest yeah and and when you say that when they call her the pest you know like a mosquito like a, something tiny like the, oh i'm telling you this book i i need to go to the psychiatrist after that <laughs> it unlocks something <laughs> or <in> maybe <laughs> i don't maybe i don't actually for having read it maybe
0: we covered you on it for a couple of months maybe this book brought you up to speed for a little bit
1: i think so but then i also was fascinated by the thinking so i've done a lot of work because one of my boys suffered from you know as we all do i have anxiety i don't mean to say we all do but a lot of people i know suffer from anxiety so one of my kids specifically had a lot of anxiety and specifically overthinking so i did a lot of research and worked with some professionals on you know how we could help with this and whatnot and there were three key areas and i had this sheet of paper when my kids were growing up that i would always refer back to so i could know how to speak to them and sort of talk talk to them about it and i noticed these character traits in ramona which is her idea of catastrophizing Fortune telling and all or nothing thinking. Oh, wow. And I was looking around going, Where's that little white piece of paper with the highlights? Because look, Ramona's doing this and somebody needs to help her because her mom needs to know this is what she's doing and you can help her and talk her
0: out of this. Yeah, she does all of those things. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. There's just so much that we could talk talk about with this book. And I love it. You mentioned something about the sense of control or lack thereof that kids often feel. And I found this blog post called Why It Works, Ramona the Pest. It was published in 2021. And I'll I'll share it in the show notes, listeners, if you want to check it out. But this blogger essentially wrote a whole piece about why Ramona the Pest works. He jokes about how so much of the writing advice out there is about like why certain things don't work and he has this blog series where he focuses on what does work about certain novels and stories. So he breaks down the specific reasons that he thinks Ramona the Pest has been so effective and successful for so many years and the first of his bullet points is Ramona is thoroughly in charge. And I wanted to pull out a couple of quotes from that section. He writes, when adults look at kids or imagine their lives, they often see them through the lens of all the restrictions placed on them. Cleary, however, understands that kids still very much have agency and can and do assert themselves despite the limitations. Cleary lets Ramona be the one to decide her own destiny as much as possible. And I thought that was really interesting because like while we as adult readers, Kara can like sit back and see that Ramona is living in a world where she ultimately does have to follow the rules. A kid reading this book probably sees that Ramona is taking control of a lot of her own destiny. Like, and I think that's often how it feels to be a kid, especially a younger kid. Like, Ramona is in kindergarten, and there does come a time, of course, when you get that frustration of like always butting up against somebody else's rules. sure. But I think there's an imagination when you're a kindergartner, where you do feel like you're in charge of your own destiny. And even if you do sometimes meet obstacles, you have agency. And I think Ramona through a lot of this book does seem to feel confident in her agency, even if we as grown up readers know that like, there are more restrictions around her than she realizes. Right, and I think that's why Ramona is gonna be okay. Yeah, Honestly and truthfully, I mean, like I said, coming through
1: with a child that had anxiety I had to impart that on him because a lot of anxiety stems from that feeling of lack of control. And, and Ramona does, she makes her own decisions and they might not be decisions that are the best decisions when she chooses to, you know, she says, no, I can't resist pulling Susan's boing. I I'm not going (laughs) to be able to do that. I love that so much. I just said, this girl is fabulous. She makes these decisions and she takes control and maybe it's not the most favorable, but it's her decision. Mm. And I think that that is, what when I read that, and I saw that she did that, I said, okay, she's she this girl's gonna be okay." And part of the therapy I went through with my son that had anxiety was that sort of idea that like he had a feeling that he had no control. He was not I call my other two my eldest and my youngest are cornflake kids, just in the sense of I could pick up any parenting book and they would fall under category A, B, C D, but the middle one, the middle one, was very different. And he did not take to sitting in a classroom and following the rules and lining up and all of those archaic school practices that maybe some schools don't do anymore, but they still have to in order to teach and whatnot, do still have to do some of them. And he was just so not into that. Now, at the same time, he was my most passionate child. I could get in the car after school to pick them up. And number one and number three would be like, hey, how are you? And, you know, off to their own thing. He would stop and stare at me in the rearview mirror and go, what happened? You're not feeling okay, and he's still that way. And I see that in Ramona. I think that she is not overly sensitive in a negative way. I think she's very much in touch with her environment, which you can't teach that. You really can't. That's a gift.
0: I'm married to a middle of three boys, so I would imagine that you and my mother-in-law probably have a lot to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. But yeah, I think I I agree with everything that you said. I mean, I think Ramona Ramona is very in touch with her environment. And I think she, whether she would be able to use this word or not, like I think she has a lot of empathy and she doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. always agree with the people around her often. In fact, she doesn't. Like she doesn't think that it's okay that she shouldn't be allowed to pull Susan's hair. She doesn't think that it should be okay that she has (laughs) to wear old boots when when she wants to wear shiny red ones like the other girls. But she does figure out how to like, sort of like, okay, well, that's just how it is. Like there's empathy there. And I also think one of the really cool things about Ramona and to your point about like, Ramona's gonna be okay, is Ramona has this self-awareness that I think is really rare in kids and adults. Like I always joke that I think this world would be a much better place if we all could be more self-aware. I think that's my biggest pet peeve is when people lack self-awareness.
1: Same, oh my goodness, it's you and I could be so friends. Annoying. Absolutely it's same. so <laughs> annoying.
0: And so to see this kindergartner understand that she's not perfect like she at times in this book is like I'm going to throw a fit right now like I know that that's the only way to get my way even though I know that I'm not supposed to throw a fit like she's able to to do that calculation in her head and to assess the situation and say like well like I'm gonna do what I'm not supposed to do but it's because I want to get my way and she's self-aware about not being perfect but she's she's always trying her best and I found a quote from Beverly Cleary from a 2014 interview where she said of Ramona she does not learn to be a better girl. I was so annoyed with the books in my childhood because children always learned to be better children. And in my experience, they didn't. Her intentions are good, but she has a lot of imagination and things sometimes don't turn out the way she had expected. Absolutely, that is great. And I love that. Like she's just like trying to figure it
1: out. <laughs> she absolutely is. And and let's get back to Dr. Phyllis Chesler's Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Ramona is the two things that put her at risk in the playground. And and I, I want to read more. I want to see her growing up because, I mean, I, I was joking with my husband at dinner the other night and I said, I want to write Ramona now. Like, where is Ramona now? Is she a graphic designer in New York City? And who is she dating? And what were her love interests? But getting back to, to what Dr. Phyllis Chesler said, Ramona is an independent thinker and she's a truth teller. And that is a high risk for an eight-year-old in a playground to be... I don't want to say a victim, but to be susceptible to woman's inhumanity, to woman, because the ones that don't fall into step, the independent thinkers and the truth tellers, those are the ones that get shunned, they get gossiped about, and they get slandered because that's how women punish other women. And I I can't tell you how, when I was reading this book, I was like, oh my gosh, Ramona.
0: (laughs) That's so interesting. And is there, does she talk about in that book, how girls or women who exhibit those characteristics are susceptible to conflict with people of all genders or is it specific to to women and girls
1: no she's she's specific to women and she talks about the tribal nature of women okay and you know how women express disapproval by disconnecting verbally as well as emotionally she talks about how women are incredibly sensitive individuals which i also go into in my book you know how we are sensitive i went into reality television as a serial pleaser and for the most part women we are pleasers For the most part, we are pleasers and we want to be liked. I'm not saying that everyone is a pleaser because I definitely have outgrown my pleasing nature. Thank goodness, I'm sorry it took me so long to do so. But I do see those tendencies in Ramona. Yes, she's a free thinker, but she also very much so with her teacher. She's a pleaser. She wants to be liked and that can be dangerous. As a woman dealing with other women, those tendencies can be incredibly dangerous. I
0: know I'm. Am I scaring you? You probably didn't mean to get this deep. No, I love when we go deep. And I, I don't know if you know this about me, Kara, but I'm a huge reality TV watcher and a, a very longtime fan of the Real Housewives. And so I'm, I'm thinking in my head of like all of the situations in which this has happened. Right. <laughs>
1: Yes, and and casting reality television, you want the independent thinker, you want the truth teller. Ramona has an incredibly high emotional intelligence, which is how I was flagged when I did this psychological analysis Mm. for Housewives. They have you do this three hour test. And after the show wrapped, I asked if I could see mine. I called the firm that had done it because it was a firm that did it for corporations. So I just called and you know said, hi, can I see my psychological assessment? And the doctor was very nice and he said, sure, I'll email it to you. And so he emailed it and the very first line said, Kara has an incredibly high emotional intelligence. And I see that in Ramona. And those are the characters that casting directors for reality television look for, for the villain, the protagonist, whatever you wanna call it, the independent thinker, the truth teller, because those are the ones that are gonna stand out from the tribal hierarchy and therefore create the drama and stir the pot, willing or unwilling. So we can't help ourselves.
0: <laughs> Sorry, <Interesting. laughs> I tell it like it is. No, it's very interesting. And I, I think if we look at Ramona and Susan, who is this like, you can see Susan's like on the way to being the queen bee of the playground. She is Absolutely. Ramona's classmate who has this beautiful hair. And Ramona wants to touch it and grab it. And I will say like there is a lot in this book about like non-consensual touching And in 1968, the conversation about that was non-existent. So not only do we have somebody who's just like fixated on touching somebody's hair, we also have Ramona chasing a boy around the playground and wanting to kiss him. Right. If this book were written today, I think rightfully so, there would be more conversation about how like Non-consensual touching is just not cool in any context. Like, let's just not do that. That was not part of the equation in 1968. Not saying that's okay, but that is what was going on. But anyway, Ramona is, like, obsessed with Susan's hair. And early in their kindergarten days, she, like, notices pretty quickly that Susan is just the princess. Like, yes from her halloween costume from everything she gets she gets picked to be the wake-up fairy at nap time which is this like coveted (laughs) position where whoever behaves the best during nap time gets chosen by the teacher to go around with like a wand and wake up all the classmates and ramona of course like desperately wants to be the wake-up fairy but she can't contain her excitement during nap time so she is never going to be the wake-up fairy so we literally have susan being selected as a fairy like a magical creature in the classroom, and then we have Ramona. And I I found a piece on BuzzFeed News called Beverly Cleary made it okay to be a Ramona in a world of Susan's, which was a great article and I will link it uh, in the show notes listeners. But the piece ends like this. I wanted to be a good kid when I was little. I wanted to be a Susan, nicely coiffed, ideally blonde, polite, diminutive, precious. I never had it in me. Cleary's books showed me that better than being a Susan was being a Ramona, always the main character, always the funniest, always right. And while I I don't think we can ever say, like, being a Ramona is always better than being a Susan, I do think what this piece sort of set up for me was that there are these two, like, archetypes. Yeah. We have Susans and we have Ramonas, and I'm sure that speaks to your reality TV experience as well. Like, I've read enough about reality TV casting to understand that, like, they're always casting for those archetypes. Absolutely. And the more you talk about your experience, I'm like, oh, like, there's a Ramona on every season of reality show. And there's a Susan (laughs) and you were
1: Ramona. (laughs) so funny i literally i used to say like oh i was the regina george and it didn't sit well with me because i was like but i wasn't mean mm. and then when i read this book i'm changing my story now and i'm gonna say it and we'll know who's read this book and who is not when i say oh yeah i was the ramona i was ramona quimby <laughs> aj <laughs> yeah i was i was yeah i was the independent thinker and the truth teller is surrounded by a sea of susans i wish you could go on itunes and watch season one of Real Housewives of Toronto. Although I don't really want you to because um, (laughs) the edit doesn't make me, it's hard for me. I watched it the other day and then I went upstairs and snaked a drain and it was more appealing to snake the drain than to watch it. Just because the edit makes me very, very unappealing. But during filming, I'm telling you, I I could relate. I was the Ramona in a sea of Susans. And the funny thing is not everybody everybody wanted to be the Susan. They weren't necessarily the Susan. And that was the issue I had. I was like, hey, if you're not a Susan, like, own it, okay? But they wanted to come across as the Susans, and here I was as the Ramona. It's just, oh, I'm telling you, this book, <laughs>
0: what it did for me <laughs> it was great. Well, for the record, I always gravitate toward the own it girl on any Real Housewives season. So uh, I definitely would have been a fan of yours. I always love the own it girl. (laughs) There's always an own it girl and I'm always on that person's team. And I will say like I was thinking about the fact that when I was a kid, so I, I would have read this book when I was pretty young, I'm sure. And I think I read it more than once. There are a couple of lines in this book that like when I read it again, I was like, oh my gosh, that has been lodged in my brain for 30 years, 25 years. Like so many little details. And I didn't know that they were from Ramona the Pest, but I read them for this episode and I was like, oh my gosh, that's what it's from. Like this thing that I've never been able to unlock. Share one, share one, I'm curious. Oh, there's so many. So there's when they're walking around the neighborhood with Howie and his little sister, they talk about Zwieback crumbs on yes. and Zwieback, I don't think I ever read that word anywhere else. And I distinctly remember reading that word in this book and like asking my mom what it meant. So Zwieback has been stuck in my head for all these years. Oh, that's funny. Dawn's early light has been stuck in my head for all these years. I love Dawn's early light because I am the classic
1: one. If you know my kids, I am the classic one to get
0: lyrics wrong. I remember um, the wind beneath
1: my wings. I always thought the first line was, you might have a beard to go unnoticed and I never understood I was like wait why does she have a beard to go unnoticed
0: (laughs) so I love Dawn's early light I could
1: relate to that so well
0: Dawn's early light a Chevrolet the doll and how she thought Chevrolet was just like the most beautiful name you could ever give to a doll But so did I. And when I read that, I was thinking, why didn't I have a daughter and name her Chevrolet? It's
1: a great name.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's all these people named Mercedes. Why aren't more people named Chevrolet? So yeah, there are all these little details that came back to me. And so I know that I read it when I was little, but I was trying to remember, like, I don't think I would have wanted to be a Susan. And I wonder how much of it is generational. Like, I wonder if when this book came out in 1968, being a Ramona was maybe like more countercultural than it is now. I feel like as a kid in the 90s, it felt very clear to me that I was sort of supposed to want to be a Ramona. Right. And part of that maybe is because I was raised by feminists and that was more appealing to me. And of course, like Ramona is the protagonist of this book, but I'd read Beezus and Ramona like I knew who Beezus was and I'd read other books with Susans who were the protagonist. Mm-hmm. But it was very clear to me from a young age that I wanted to be Ramona. So I'm wondering if when this book first came out all those years ago, if like Ramona was a much different kind of protagonist than young readers young girls in particular were used to
1: oh i i definitely would think so i would definitely i mean you know we can say she's more like the the joe from little women but i i just know when when i grew up i mean i had to sit still for hair braiding and my mom would put pin curls in my hair and perfume them my mom really wanted my mom wanted a susan and she got a ramona (laughs) but i think that definitely you know i think of uh I mean, I'm going to date myself, but the girls in my class all looked to truly scrumptious, you know, as their fashion icon. Yeah. Yep.
0: Uh, well, let's talk about some of the like specific sort of incidents of this book, because we are talking about Ramona's entry into kindergarten and all of these funny things that happen she's so excited to go I wonder if you can relate to that Kara as you were saying like you have an older sister and you always wanted to do what she was doing and that's how that's how Ramona feels like she's waited all these years to be able to follow her older sister to kindergarten and today is the day and nothing will stop her and she's impatient she is like mom why can't we just get going and I would say the first like Ramona ism that really happens I mean we have Dawn's early light where she misunderstands the words to the National anthem. But the real like first incident is that when Ramona gets to class, her teacher, Miss Binney, who is this like young, cool teacher, tells her to just have a seat for the present. Just have a seat for the present. (laughs) Um, And I don't know if you're familiar with the Amelia Bedelia books, Kara, but I am I was just talking about those the
1: other night too. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I actually feel like Ramona has some Amelia Bedelia tendencies. Yes, she does. In terms of just being super literal. And of course, Amelia is like an adult (laughs) and Ramona is just processing things like a child. But she interprets Miss Binney's request for her to take a seat for the present as a promise that if she just sits down, she is going to get a gift. And she takes that so seriously. And I thought that was such a great introduction to her as a character. It really was into her personality and, and everything. No, it was, I love that. Yeah, she's like, I will sit here. She's like, all of you idiots getting up, walking around, <laughs> like playing this Gray Duck game. Oh, that was the other thing I remembered. the game Gray Duck. I never played Gray Duck in my whole life. I played a version of it, I'm sure, but I'd never played the version that was like called Grey Duck, but that came back to me. No, we played Duck, Duck, Goose. Yes, totally. Ours was
1: called Duck, Duck, Goose. Yeah, yeah.
0: Duck, Duck, Goose, but Grey Duck was what it was called in this book, and that came back to me With the well. mush
1: pot. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I had never heard that before either. That was interesting.
0: Yeah, all these like sort of twists on familiar things. Um, and she's like, yeah, if you, if you idiots all want to go play Grey Duck, that's cool. <laughs> but, like, I'm going to sit here and wait for it, the present. And it's funny because now as an adult who's older than Miss Binny probably. I couldn't help but feel for Miss Binnie, who was like, this is potentially her first ever day of teaching. And she is already like speaking out of turn and her students are already misunderstanding her. And I could just feel how frazzled she must have been looking at this child who thinks that she's getting a gift and refuses to stand up from her seat. And I was just, I was panicking for her.
1: Yes, actually, I could relate to that too. My niece is a teacher. She teaches grade three, and she shared some stories and whatnot from her first day saying she really had a lot of
0: imposter syndrome with these
1: little kids. Yeah. (laughs) Thinking, wow, they're all looking to me and like giving me so much authority. And do I really deserve this authority?
0: Yeah. I mean, I teach much older students, I teach high schoolers and undergrads, and I feel a lot of pressure. And I can't imagine like being in charge of very little people who also have like more biological needs like um that's what I was thinking too absolutely oh I love that part where they were
1: all fascinated with Mike Mulligan and how would he go to the bathroom if he had to drive the tractor all
0: day yeah I mean these are good questions but again I was like poor Miss Vinny, what is she supposed to say to this especially in like 1968 I'm sure there are a lot of rules about what she's supposed to say and not say in a classroom Completely, my son was a camp counselor and
1: he was in charge of the little kid, like the entry level kids to camp who would have been six years old. And they would not stop, they were little boys and they would not stop asking him where babies came from. And he said, mom, I was like, oh my gosh, what do I say? So he said, I finally said He said, I had to like say to the parents after if they ask like where babies come from, (laughs) this is what I said. He finally told them,
0: baby gap, your parents go to baby gap and pick one out. (laughs) That was a great answer. I mean, (laughs) put on the spot. That's a pretty good reply, I think. I thought so too. Yeah, so Ramona is like already making a splash on kindergarten and she feels silly. Like, I think that's the other thing that I felt I felt for Ramona, like that sent, and I, I was not so much this way as a kid. I think I've become more this way as an adult. I was much shyer when I was a kid, but I think like I I experienced this kind of secondhand embarrassment for her because I could see how how firm she was in her principles. And like, she believes what she believes so hard. And then when you realize you're wrong, it's such a hard fall and to be in public and to like, just be kind of stretching your social wings. I just was like, Oh, I want to give you a hug. Right. Because
1: she is so sensitive. Yeah. She is a very sensitive little girl. Yes.
0: And I am a sensitive person and I was a very sensitive little girl. So that I totally understood. What were some of your other favorite kind of like Ramona isms or Ramona moments in the book?
1: Um, I loved her. I loved the the seat work. Her, I, I love the way, Beverly Cleary captured the cadence of a day in, and and interesting because it was, you know, morning kindergarten versus full day kindergarten, but she really did a great job of capturing, you know, now we're gonna do this, now we're gonna do seat work, now we're gonna have recess. She really did a great way of all these years, I'm sorry, I'm a lot older than you, I'm 53, and she brought me right back to those feelings of what it what it meant and when you had to sit there. And I, rem- I can remember tracing the letters and i love the way ramona is so creative and she does her well first of all she wants a a dot and then a q (laughs) after her name because some of the other there's two johns i think so one is john p and another is john r or something like that and so she wants to know why she can't be ramona dot q (laughs) and the way she draws the kitten in the queue or the cat in the queue she's just she's such a lovable individual sweet little girl that like just has all these great I don't know, fire and, and and I did find myself reading it a little bit with Miss Beanie going, Okay, but and maybe this is the mom in me. Don't don't quench that fire. Yeah. Like don't put it out. I understand there needs to be a certain order to school. And probably again this harkens back to my middle son who was not the cornflake kid. And and the most important thing I felt for him was that his spirit not be quelched. And, you know, he will say to me now as a young adult. You stood up for me so much, Mom, and that meant the world to me. I saw you going into the parent-teacher interviews and, you know, the teachers wanted you to be shocked and shake your head and reprimand me. He wasn't a a bad boy, but he was a spirited boy. So he wasn't cruel to other kids, but he was spirited in the class. And he would ask the questions a lot like what Ramona would be doing with um, Miss Binney. So I just, I felt very protective of her that I didn't want Miss Binny as much as I liked her. And yeah, she's the young, cool teacher. I didn't want her to squelch the spirit. I was very concerned about that when I was reading. That bothered me and stuck out with me.
0: Yeah, and there there just doesn't seem to be like a place for that in this world. And again, maybe it's the time period, but like I would imagine that Ramona's parents don't know that they can be an advocate for their daughter. Like I just don't know that right. that's the norm. And I do think no. there were moments when Miss Binny was like almost there. Like I so related to Ramona's obsession with her teacher because I was a teacher's pet and I would get really attached to my teachers and I would just imagine that they loved me as much as I loved them and it was magical. And so I understood all of that. And there were a couple of instances where I felt like we saw a glimmer of Miss Benny giving Ramona the respect that she so desperately wanted from adults and even from other kids. Like I think so much of Ramona's frustration in this book is just wanting to be seen and wanting to be appreciated for who she is. Absolutely. And while Miss Binny does ultimately usually like come down on the side of the rules and like wanting to teach Ramona the way that she's supposed to teach all of these kids, there are like moments when we kind of see her appreciating Ramona's creativity and she at least like doesn't make fun of Ramona the way other People do. And like, that's the dynamic she's used to with other kids. So, right. We almost get there with Miss Binnie, but then, yes, to your point, like, she usually falls back on like the rules and what like conformity looks like.
1: Yes. Which, again, we have to take into consideration school in 1968 versus school today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For sure. Very
1: different, very different environments. I mean, back then, I'm sure they were still doing rote and whatnot. So, that's a I'll I'll give Miss Binnie a break for that (laughs) (laughs) but I was it made me insane that she was willing to leave the boots in the mud yeah I can't tell you how much that bothered me and I loved Henry and if I was to write Ramona as an adult, I think that maybe Henry would be like a Colin Firth type person who is in Manhattan who's an accountant and she meets up with him again. <laughs> oh, <I laughs> and love maybe that. she falls in love with him again, because I just love the fact that he went, oh, and went back and got the
0: boots. Thank you for getting the boots, Henry. Yes, we needed somebody to get the boots, especially because they were new. And you talked a little bit about sexism and, and Ramona's mom. And I'm wondering if you were referring to the boot situation, because there's a whole chapter about a rainy day when Ramona has to wear these old boots that are hand-me-downs from Howie, her neighbor. And much is made of the fact that like boys wear brown boots and girls have to wear shiny red boots. And so she's feeling really insecure about having to wear not only old hand-me-down boots when she wishes that she could have new boots like the other girls, but these are just like, as far as she can tell, fundamentally not shoes meant for girls And so, yes, we do have this, like, very old school separation between what's appropriate for boys, what's appropriate for girls. And I want to emphasize this is, like, a very heteronormative context because it is 1968 and this conversation (laughs) as a result has been very heteronormative. Mm -hmm. And I I just thought that was interesting. And, of course, like, Beverly Cleary is representing on the page what she saw around her. And I'm sure at that time, like, girls did wear shiny red boots only and to wear brown muddy boots as a girl would have been horrible. But... It is amazing to read that in 2023 and realize like, wow, people were really put into these binaries and there was no wiggle room whatsoever.
1: Absolutely. No, I really felt that too. And also what I appreciated, though, I will say this, was her mother going pattern shopping for a dress pattern really resonated with me and and the dad coming home and the dad sort of being the reprimanding serious type that when the mother would say Ramona, stop doing something, Ramona didn't listen, but when her dad did, she knew she had to listen and probably because our household, my husband and I decided we were going to co-parent. There wasn't going to be dad is the heavy hand and mom is this. And if anything, if you talk to my kids, they said, mom, we were more scared when you were upset (laughs) than dad (laughs) because we knew if you were upset, it was like, uh Oh yeah, now we've really done it. But so what I did appreciate about Beverly Cleary was, the way the economic situation was presented, I mean, her mom was very sensible, saying, look, we can't afford new red boots, so get over it. And and her mom was making, she wasn't going to the finest dress shop. She was making her dresses from patterns. I actually really appreciated that, to tell you the truth. It resonated. There were a couple other instances she did that Beverly Cleary did a good job of Just sort of suggesting, hey, Ramona is every girl's girl. She's not some highfalutin, whereas I really felt like Susan came from a different household. I don't know, maybe because she was dropped off at school in her special costume
0: and her hair. Yes, her hair (laughs) being perfectly done. I remember there being a lot of commentary around Beverly Cleary's death about the way she portrayed middle class, lower middle class kids and how that was so important. And like. These kids of Click Cat Street were, Click Clat Street, I I don't think I'm saying that right, but these kids of Ramona's (laughs) Neighborhood are just like normal, everyday kids whose parents are couponing and making dresses from patterns and sometimes they have to go to work. And so their kids have to walk themselves to school, which, you know, in 2023 feels. Right, and they're replacing, they're replacing
1: the cords on their waffle makers. Right. I love that. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think so much up until this point, at least what I've read sort of in the scholarship about Kidlet until 1968, like so many stories until this time were about kids that were magical or were exceptional in mm-hmm. some way, like they were royalty or something. And yeah, here we just have like a bunch of kids who hang out together in the neighborhood and they're figuring it out alongside their parents who are figuring it out. And like, again, as a 30 something, I realized that I'm probably the same age as the parents in this book. And I'm like, wow, okay, yeah, sometimes it's hard, life is hard, and you're scrimping and saving and you're having to make hard decisions. And I agree with you, like, it's refreshing to just see people living a normal life.
1: Yes, I really did appreciate that.
0: My favorite Ramonaism um happened after she takes a hard stance about the substitute teacher so she goes to school <laughs> and she's very upset that Miss Binny is gone and I will say one of the think pieces I found talks about how like this is one of those situations where a kid, especially a kid as young as Ramona, would be like so baffled by the rules of the adult world. Like, you know, I have this teacher who professes to love me and who says that I'm not allowed to miss school, but then I show up one day and she's not there. Like that shouldn't be allowed. So that that I thought was a good example of like Beverly Cleary. Right. And And the very... She does a good job of capturing the very um, me-centric world yeah.
1: of I would assume Ramona is around six or seven that's in Canada that's how old we are when we start JK
0: yeah and just like spotlighting the bizarreness of adult rules for a kid I thought that mm-hmm. was a really good example of that so she gets to school and the substitutes there and nobody's explained why and so mm-hmm. Ramona goes and hides behind the trash cans um and decides that she's gonna wait until Miss Binny comes to school and she's cold and she's dirty and ultimately Beza has to come find her and pull her inside to school and she goes to the principal's office and I I just loved the fact that Ramona is so dramatic that she <laughs> is like she's not she's not even happy that the principal Miss Mullen isn't punishing her The quote just says, Ramona felt a little indignant because Miss Mullen did not demand to know why she had been hiding all the time. Miss Mullen did not even notice how forlorn and tear-stained Ramona looked. Like, Ramona has such main character energy in that (laughs) moment of, like, I am a shivering child, like, behind a dumpster. And I'm cold and so brave. And, like, I guess it's great that I'm not punished. Yes.
1: Her knees were hurt from the asphalt. Right. Like, (laughs) the
0: drama of, like... Wait, but you're not going to ask, great. you're not going to ask why I was doing that. You know, she feels so strongly about this position she took about waiting outside. And I think that the funny thing is, is like you said, the me centric nature of being a kid, like nobody actually cares. <laughs> like This <laughs> principal just needs to get you inside and make sure that she knows where you are because that's her job. Like she really doesn't care why you were behind the trash cans. But to Ramona, right. like she has this whole narrative about why she's been outside and why she's cold and why she is so brave.
1: Yes. She is great, isn't she? Oh my gosh. I would I would cast her on a reality show as an adult in a New York minute. Oh,
0: yeah, she would be so great. What do you think Ramona is doing as an adult? So you this idea of writing about her as a grown up, I feel like I feel like she lives in the Midwest, like maybe Chicago. Okay. That's I could I can see that.
1: I feel she's either a graphic illustrator or maybe, maybe she was so fascinated with the hair that she went on to be like a hairstylist or something like that. And she can boing hair whenever she wants to.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I like that. I feel like I don't, I, I'm not sure that she's married. I feel like she is out. Isn't
1: it funny? No. Yeah.
0: That I just like, don't get that from her at all. I think she's dating. I'd be curious to see, and I, I haven't found anything about this, but I would say other characters in Kid lit who are like Ramona, I've read a lot about sort of queer coding in those books, like Harriet the Spy. Oh, interesting. There's a lot out there about how um, a lot of people who read Harriet now see her as queer or Christy from the Babysitter's Club oh. or Pippi Longstocking. So I feel like Ramona kind of falls in with some of those characters, personality-wise. Yeah. So while I doubt Beverly Cleary was thinking that in 1968, though I wouldn't put it past her, I wonder if maybe Ramona is queer and dating whoever she wants. I would love that for her. And I just think she's having a good time. And I think it would be so cool to have her go back to a high school reunion in- Oh, yeah. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool to see like the interaction with Susan and Howie? Like maybe that's how she and Howie reunite. Oh, maybe that is how they get together. Howie or oh, Henry. I guess you said Henry. Henry. I like her with Henry. Yeah.
1: But still, Howie, I feel like Howie would be her. I feel like they grow apart a little and then they become best friends. And maybe Howie secretly wants to be with her. And, and he she's the love of his life from his childhood.
0: Yeah, I can see Howie pining after her. But he always, I love the, the whole notion of like the kids having these relationships that are mediated by adults, like Howie, yes. Howie lives in the neighborhood. And you can tell that Howie's mom and Ramona's mom are really good friends. And there are all these moments where they're like, why don't you two play? And they don't really want to play. Like these kids don't actually want to play together. And that is so real. Like I so remember that as a kid, just having these relationships with kids that I didn't really want to hang out with that were 100. But the moms yeah. were friends. Right. And
1: that dictated your
0: friends. It's so
1: true. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting because my youngest has graduated high school and I really do sense the void of fortunately, I just had lunch the other day with some of the high school moms who I have been missing terribly. But it's funny because when you're little like that, the moms dictate who your friends are because you know, you wanna have other kids over and whatnot that, you know, if you're gonna be around, you wanna be able to talk to the moms and whatnot. And then the dynamic changes. And I became friends with other women who were moms of my son's friends, right? So we went on the grad trip with these four other couples and it was really interesting to see, okay, these are the parents of my son's friends. And then we, I became friends with these adult women. It was just interesting the way that dynamic changes. Yeah,
0: that is so interesting. Cause I would, I imagine that you would want to be around people who are sharing similar experiences and like in exactly. a similar life stage. So I'm sure that Ramona's mom and Howie's mom continue to walk around and catch up and commiserate about their kids. Forever. They probably still are doing that wherever they are in the fictional world. I think so. I just really need to see Ramona as a young adult. I'll, I'll be waiting <laughs> I'll be waiting for it from you, Kara. I think okay. I think you all heard it here first. I think you're going to get it from Kara. Um, so I'd love to hear sort of on the whole what you thought of Ramona. I think I know what you're going to say. Because you didn't read this book as a kid, we're not going to compare it to your childhood reading experience of Ramona the Pest, but on the whole, i just love to hear if and how this book measured up to your expectations, and maybe how it compares to books that you do remember reading when you were a kid.
1: So I was not a great reader when I was little. My mother would pick, and I'm I'm not selling my mom down the river in this podcast, please, no. But (laughs) she was a very matriarchal individual, which is why I wanted to write a book about female friendships. I went to an all-girls school. My mom was very matriarchal in the family. I had a lot of girl cousins. And my mom would oftentimes pick the books for me. And that was the biggest ripoff for the Scholastic Book Fair because (laughs) she would decide what I was gonna read as opposed to me deciding what I wanted to buy with my babysitting money. So I didn't enjoy reading until I was a young adult. Hmm. So I really think had I read this book, I actually would have enjoyed it. And I would be curious to know, because again, it's written in 1968. I would be curious to know why my mom wasn't putting these sort of books in front of me. And I'm wondering if it's a Canadianism because a lot of the books she put in front of me were a, About children growing up in Britain and Europe Mm. and I found it so very unrelatable and cold and I don't want to you know not to be disparaging to some of the other authors but nothing that really captured me the way this narrative and this interaction was just so real and not stoic and yeah my mom was a little stoic when we were growing up hey we had plastic on our sofas and whatnot because when the company came over they had to look (laughs) pristine So it's so interesting what you put in front of your kids. And I can remember when my kids were young, we read the Everest series. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, I'm not. but it's, it says it's, I want to say a three or four book series about um, young kids, male and female who go on this expedition to climb Everest. And I read it aloud to my children who ranged in age from 11 down to the youngest would have probably actually even been maybe two, like sort of just lying in the bed, hearing it. But we all, the kids were so real and, I just really what resonated me with me about Ramona is she is the ultimate flawed heroine. Mm. I mean, she really is the flawed heroine. And I enjoyed reading that in the book Everest. And I missed that because I didn't see a lot of flawed heroines in what I was reading at that
0: age. So I hope that does that translate and make sense to you? It absolutely does. And I echo everything you said about Ramona as a flawed heroine. Uh, listeners, I know I've mentioned it a few times, but I will refer you to the show notes for this week because there are some great extra reading to do about Ramona as a flawed heroine and the inspiration that she's given people over the years to be themselves and to not have to be a Susan. So um, I think that's a great way to wrap up our conversation about Ramona and I'm so glad we got to have it. So thank you for choosing Ramona the Pest, Cara. Other than Ramona the Pest, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners?
1: So, no, I won't say lately because I've been (laughs) launching my book and then it's funny when I was doing the final edits of my book I was very conscious about what I was reading and I talked to um, Marissa Stapley who wrote Lucky Mm. and she was writing a book and she said oh I'm not reading anything right now because there is this little bit of you don't want to read anything and then Have it translate into your subconscious and then translate into your book. So I was really happy to hear her say that to go, like, okay, so when you're in the throes of this and I'm misreading right now, I'll have to tell you, in all honesty, I love Ruth Ware and I have started It Girl many times and I can't get into it. And I've never. Not finished, I've never had a DNF on a Ruth Ware book, but I'm scared that that's gonna be the case. And maybe it, it could just be my psyche now because there really is a lot with publishing and launching a book. That being said, I le- absolutely adore Lucky. Have you read Lucky by Marissa Stapley? I have
0: not, but I, I'm gonna have to oh. check it
1: out. Oh, you have to. No spoiler alert here. This is what you'll read on the back of the book. A girl who is a grifter, who is wanted, perhaps by the FBI, I think, but gets a lottery ticket. And And again, this is not a spoiler, gets a lottery ticket and wins. And how does she collect her winnings without being caught Ooh. and that's oh it's really a great book another one that i really liked because i do like canadian authors and i like female-centric books laurie elizabeth flynn the girls are also nice here have you read that i've heard of it oh it's great and the twists i love i love a thriller i don't like gore me neither but i like to be i i'm not into gore at all but i like a thriller where I'm guessing and trying to figure out and, oh, this twist. And then I'm trying to outthink the author before she gets there. And this, that was a
0: really good one for that. Excellent, excellent writing. Okay. I think somebody else who's been on the podcast recommended that to me. So I should maybe bump it up on my list. I don't necessarily love all thrillers, but I love anything with like great characters. And that sounds like it could. Fantastic characters and takes
1: place at an all girls college and really great. Yeah. you, You would really enjoy that.
0: And for what it's worth, I've heard from several guests on the podcast that when they're launching a book or writing a book, they will either avoid reading altogether or avoid reading anything that's like too similar to what they work on because they don't want it to get in their head. So I think- I think that's a pretty typical feeling. So uh, you're not alone. It makes me feel much better (laughs) to hear that. It really does. But again, I miss reading and I need to get
1: back to it, but I'm going to have to put It Girl on the side because I think it's sort of like other books that I've had that I didn't like, and then I went back and revisited them. It just wasn't the right time for them. So if you have any suggestions, I really want to read Happy
0: Place. I want to read Romantic Comedy. If you have any suggestions for me, I am open to them for something light. I loved Romantic Comedy and I have Happy Place on my TBR for next month. Um, I will have I'm sure I can think of some other fun ones that I'll send you because I've been reading some good books lately. So I will, I'll see what I can come up with. But I do want to talk a little bit more about your book, Most Hated, which came out a few months ago. Congratulations on your fiction debut. You've hinted a little bit about what it's about over the course of our conversation, but I'd love for you to share more so that our listeners can go check it out for themselves
1: so i always wanted to write a book about female relationships again as i said i come from a very matriarchal family god bless my dad but you know we were all girls and we had mostly girl cousins i went to an all-girls school and female relationships have fascinated me since i can remember being eight on the playground and seeing other girls observing them interacting with each other i just thought it was such a fascinating dynamic so once i did housewives i i would say probably the third episode in I thought this is a great backdrop for a book about women interacting with other women. So, the reality television is sort of like the sauce on. The Sunday, but the the real ice cream is the relationships between these women and how each of them sign on to do this reality show for individual reasons. They they all have something that they want to change about their lives, and they're convinced that perhaps by doing well, not totally convinced, but they believe perhaps by doing this reality television show, they'll either have a chance to change their life, or share their narrative with the world, or increase their popularity. I have a social media influencer as one of the characters, so you know she's there to increase her followers and whatnot. Yeah, one of the one of the characters is married to a football superstar because I, I had the privilege of being involved in a, it was really just like a support group sort of, of women who were married to superstar athletes. And, and what I learned from that group, I found so fascinating that I knew one character had to be married to a superstar athlete because we only get a very small sliver of that picture in what the media covers about these people. And it, it was fascinating. So the other character, I was always intrigued by women who were married to men who had been involved in Me Too incidents, Mm. um, accused of sexual misconduct, because we hear from the victims as we should, first and foremost. And oftentimes we hear from the men. And I'm thinking, you know, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, we hear from the men, but we don't always hear from the wives. And I was always so curious, you know, what about Annette Lauer? What about Georgina Mossbacher? Like, not Mossbacher, Georgina Chapman. I'm really fascinated to hear their stories. So one of the characters is a girl who grew up a Park Avenue princess and a young actress, she marries an older, wealthy British aristocrat, and he. while they're living in England, he's accused of a Me Too incident, a couple of them, and she gets divorced and moves back to America to repatriate herself, and she wants a chance to share her narrative, and you know, the world has already made up their minds about who she is, and her cousin convinces her, do this reality show and share your narrative. She's also trying to win back her daughter who she left over in England, so she has a lot of compelling reasons, and it's just really a story of women interacting with women some women treating each other not so nicely, women what they will do to get ahead, and just a whole female-centric tabloid culture, women maneuvering through their landscape, I would say. It's very, it's light and funny and fun, but there are layers, and some of the layers, the characterization was informed by what I experienced as a reality participant, and then I went on to produce reality television. So some of it was informed by that, and some of it was very much informed by Dr. Phyllis Chesler's book, women's inhumanity to women, because wow, that book should be required reading for every 16 year old girl. She spends seven pages at the beginning of this book apologizing for writing it, which I thought here is a well-established psychologist who is so scared of the sisterhood and the retaliation. And she does say, look, I love women and I love men. I am a second generation feminist. This is friendly fire and it must be discussed. Yeah. And she does a great job of dissecting it and going through it. So some of that informed my characterization as well.
0: Well, I'm going to add that book to my reading list as well. And of course yours. So I will say listeners, uh, Kara was kind enough to send me a copy of Most Hated. And I usually like to hold off on reading a guest's book until after I have the chance to talk to them just because I feel like it informs my reading experience so much. So I've been hanging on to my copy of Most Hated, especially knowing that it would be perfect for summer and maybe for a vacation. And I knew as soon as you sent it to me and shared more about the book that it it's like, I mean, listeners will know because I love... Books that are rich with character, and I love reading about pop culture and reality TV, and just the way that we are portraying social media and fiction is fascinating to me. So, it has my name all over it, and I cannot wait to read it, especially now that we have had the chance to chat. And I just really appreciate you spending this time with me. I am so happy to be here. I'm going to share a fun fact with you. I just got a
1: notice the other day that Most Hated is being used. To teach a course called Sociology and the Cult of Sociology at a college in Scarborough in England. I know. I went, Are you kidding me? And I wanted to reach out to the professor and go like this is the neatest thing in the world. And if you want me to pop in on a Zoom, absolutely I will.
0: (laughs) I hope they let you. That's so cool. Yeah. I guess those are the things you just you never see coming when you write a fiction book. But that's really cool. That's really cool. (laughs) Well, listeners, make sure you check out most hated. I think we're running a giveaway this week, so Check that out. And uh, Kara, I've loved spending this time with you, so thank you. Thank you for having me very much. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes. Behind the scenes inside scoop and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.